Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. My name is Garnet Jenis, husband, father, reader, and blessed with the honor of serving in Canada's national parliament. I want to thank you for listening. I think one of the biggest problems plaguing our society is that we don't actually debate much anymore. We inhabit our own little silos, conservatives talking to other conservatives, liberals talking to other liberals, oil workers talking to other oil workers, tax lawyers talking to other tax lawyers, you get the idea. People talking to those with whom they already share significant common experience and values. And that means that when we get together across experiential or values divides, we often end up shouting at each other or just talking past each other. So if you're listening to this podcast because you agree with me, that's great. But if you've tuned in and you come from a different political party, a different intellectual tradition, or a different part of the country, I want you to feel particularly welcome because this podcast is for you. It's about creating opportunities for good, fruitful conversation and debate among people who don't always agree. In order to do that, we're going to start every show with an interview with a guest, but then conclude with a debate involving one or two other parliamentarians from different parties. We're going to try to get into some really meaty and important topics and not just about politics. The COVID-19 pandemic is approaching its second birthday. And at this point, frustration levels are pretty high on a lot of fronts. Most people, of course, want everything to go back to normal, but the virus itself is never likely to disappear completely. So we're now left with this question of what kind of normal we are aiming for and what kinds of modifications to our society we are comfortable accepting. As people think about how we can get back to something like normal, vaccination is obviously a central part of the discussion. With some people insisting on coercive policy to promote vaccination as the only way to get back to normal, and others seeing the level of government coercion involved in new vaccination policies as crossing a red line. The question being debated around vaccination policy is not fundamentally about what you think about vaccines or about the COVID-19 vaccine in particular. The question is really one of personal freedom or classical liberalism. The question is about the degree to which the state is justified in trying to push vaccination through coercive means aimed at making life uncomfortable for the unvaccinated. Of course, some policies around vaccination are aimed at keeping particular venues or spaces COVID free, but mandatory vaccination policies that even apply to those who work from home, take classes via distance learning, or have natural immunity conferred by a recent infection are clearly not just about immunity. They are about creating the greatest possible incentive to get vaccinated. Now, there are many aspects of this issue that we can discuss, but today we're gonna to focus on the new federal requirements for federal public service. I think their situation is analogous to many employees who are now facing vaccination requirements associated with their workplaces. In the second half, we're gonna be having a great discussion with a member of parliament from another party. But for the first half, I'm very excited to be joined by Stéphane Aubry, National Vice President of the Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada. The Professional Institute of the Public Service of Canada is a union that represents 57,000 public servants. So Stéphane, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you, Mr. Janis. Happy to be with you today. Excellent. Um, by, by way of, of general introduction, uh, I wonder if you can just share with us what the rules that your members are facing in terms of vaccination and what your response has been to the introduction of those rules. So obviously you're making reference to the policy that has been put in place requiring uh, mandatory vaccination of all public servants in the core administration. The requirement was first introduced in August 13, uh, just days before the election were called. 
The policy was formalized later on October 5th, starting with the requirements that all public servants to attest of their status within four weeks, leading to October 29. Those that have not attested or were not being granted exception by November 15 would be put on leave without pay. The policy has been copied by other federal employers agencies that are not considered part of the core administration with slightly different dates. Our members and our organization consider vaccination as one of the tools to control and fight back the impact of the virus on the society. Our members are scientists uh, some have been participated in the process of validating the vaccines used and have worked on the various recommendations that were provided to the various health authorities and put in place across Canada. The policy is a hard to accept, but it makes sense in the current situation that we're going through a COVID pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if you could speak to the question of, uh, of accommodations or exceptions uh, and uh, how those are evaluated. Um, and then also, if you have members who are working from home and uh, the degree to which um, this policy would apply to them, it, sound, it, it sounds like it would. It sounds like it applies to everyone, regardless of whether they're, uh, they're interacting with other, uh, other employees. Yeah, effectively, the, the policy, as it has been stated, is a broad scope that impact that is applied to every public servant. Um, so public servants were offered through the policy uh, a mean to get an exemption or uh, accommodations that they could re request. Uh, there were three reasons that are recognized by the policy. The first one, the most obvious one, is for medical contraindication. Uh, so public servant had to provide a written statement uh, from their medical physician or a nurse practitioner stating why they should not be vaccinated. Uh, so amongst the elements that have been recognized are an history of uh, allergies related to the product in the, uh, the vaccines that have been developed, mainly around uh, uh, polyethylene glycol that is part of uh, two of the vaccine that exists. Um, the second reason uh, is for religious uh, requirements, religious uh, exemptions. Uh, so again, uh, the public servant would have to present uh, a statement uh, that would need to be sworn in as in the form of an affidavit stating why their religion, why their religious belief uh, required that they don't get vaccinated. And the third reason, which is a bit more grayish, I would say, is uh, would be exceptions based on ground for discrimination that are as prohibited by the Canadian Human Rights Act. So those reasons could be because of uh, well, the, the, the elements that is stated in the uh, Human Rights Act because of race, nationality, color, sex, religion. Um, so those elements could be ground for requesting an, an exemption. Um, the policy applied to all public servants, uh, independent of are they currently working uh, in their offices or working from home. Um, and 
for our understanding the reason why it also apply for members that are working at home is basically because currently for the government, there's no real position that has been stated that has been identified as teleworkers permanent position. So uh, at any time, the employer can request an employee to come back to the office. And because of that, uh, the, the requirements also apply for them that are at home. Um, so uh, as of recently, the last numbers that we have, there's over 4,000 public servants that did request an exemption accommodations. Uh, part of the issue is that they, they, they had to provide that requirement, that request before uh, October 29, but due to the numbers, there's kind of a backlog of reviewing those requests. Uh, and as of today, there's still uh, public servant that have made a request and those requests for accommodation has not been finalized, clarified. Uh, the accommodation that would be put in place would uh, need to be adapted to each uh, workers, but they would be in a mix of uh, requesting the employee to stay working at home, or uh, if they really need to come to the office, they would have to be tested twice a week uh, to make sure that they they are not uh, they do not, do not have the, the COVID and still wear masks within the offices, uh, not to expose uh, their coworkers. So it's the current state that uh, the, the the requirements for uh, exemption uh, is currently ongoing, and uh, we have members that have been granted those exemptions and others that are still pending uh, to, to know the results. Was that number you gave 4,000 requesting exemption? Was that, is that 4,000 public servants in total or 4,000 of your members? 4,000 total public servant, yeah. Uh, okay. We don't have the numbers per unions, per region. So it's, okay. it's kind of great for now, yeah. And to give people a sense, I mean, 4,000 is, is a large number, but uh, just refresh my memory here. I mean, how, how large is the, is the total public service, uh, core public service that, 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 would, that would be? It's around uh, 330,000 public servants. So it's a, it's a very limited numbers of public servants that did request accommodations. And there's even a smaller numbers of public servants that have uh, stated that they are not vaccinated, that they don't want to be vaccinated. But overall, 96, 97% of public servants have stated that they are fully vaccinated. Okay, so yeah, my my uh, quick math is that that's about 1.2% of uh, of, uh, of of public servants and are, are requesting an exemption. Uh, you know, you, you said some there, there's a backlog. Some people are still waiting for the evaluation of those uh, of those exemptions. Um, some people have been granted exemptions. Uh, is your sense that there are a substantial number of requests for exemption that are being denied or are most of the people that are that are asking for it getting it some have been denied some members have reached out to us asking for further support in, in trying to look into their issue their claim and uh, see if there there were misunderstanding or errors in how they were reviewed uh, but uh, and at this point the employer have the right to validate what was the claim uh, made based on. So sometimes it's the delays is caused by uh, the employer requesting further details, further uh, 
attestation of the situation that they are claiming for. Mm -hmm. Okay, now um, it will be will be interested. I think people will be interested to kind of follow how how these things uh, develop over time in terms of the backlog and and uh, any concerns you may have about whether people are getting exemptions that that they they should or not. Um, in terms of the policy itself and and the sort of rationale behind it, um, you, you said it was difficult to accept, but I think maybe I heard you say that that you know you you understand it in the context of the circumstances. Uh, I mean, what about for folks who say, look, I'm I'm happy to work from home and I'm happy to get a test when I go into the to, into the office. Now, clearly, that's a a relatively small minority within the within the public service. But somebody who says, you know, I can. I'm happy to take that test if I need to go into the office and work from home otherwise. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it, this is, this is sort of what I want to do for, for me and my body. I mean, what, what's your, what's your perspective on just allowing folks who want that alternative to, to have that alternative? Um, as you said, we have members that have, concerns in regard to the policy uh, that have contacted us uh, at the beginning of the, the, that overall situation, uh, claiming that they, they don't want to be vaccinated, that they will not disclose their personal information, even if they are vaccinated or not. Um, so yes, the, we have members that are concerned as citizens in Canada, some have concerns in regard to the vaccination. Um, and, and that concern goes into what will happen with that information that is provided to the employer. Um, if I do a, a parallel with uh, in the past, um, so what is currently requested by the employer is to provide an attestation. So it's not directly providing uh, their medical information. It's mm -hmm. a way to synchronize, go around the, the, the question. So there's no, personal information, no medical information that is collected by the employer. Um, the, that information get limited access by their supervisor. Uh, so it doesn't go much further out. And uh, my parallel with the past is that in the past, if as a public servant, I was to request uh, a leave of absence for medical reason, well, the employer have all the rights to request, well, what is that reason? And, and would ask me to provide medical information and attestation, a paper from my physician stating why I'm not able to work. Uh, that same information would be stored somewhere, made available to management. Um, so it's part of the concerns that members have raised to us about what's, go, what's gonna happen with that information, how it's gonna circulate around. Um, the, and at the same time, the management need that information to make sure that uh, proper accommodation is made for the employee depending on this situation. Uh, if we look in the past for health and safety for ergonomics, that information was re required to make sure the accommodation was uh, adequate for the employee. Well, in the case of the vaccination, again, the employer has kind of put down guidelines on what type of accommodation could be set, uh, but uh, the information only circulate, uh, goes around uh, on a need to know basis. Um, 
so yes, our members are concerned by the situation. They're not sure uh, how to react and uh, are pressure into uh, getting vaccinated. So it's, it's the tension and the stress that cause uh, is also part of the, the overall situation that they are living through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to ask uh, as well for just your, your reflections on some of the public conversation around this issue. Um, it seems that there's often this conflation between the question of, of vaccination and the question of mandatory vaccination. And I, I, I would imagine that, um, that there are many people who are, who are pro-vaccination, um, uh, but, but also are uncomfortable with some aspects of, of coercion uh, as, it, as it's um, manifest here. And so I, I'm just curious about the conversations you're having with, with your members on that, people that are are obviously many of whom are, are scientists and, and uh, very close to these issues. Um, do you have a concern that there's sort of this conflation between being concerned about coercion and the assumption that that somehow is tied to being anti-vaccination? Um, I would say we tried and the employer, the government tried to have uh, to present the situation as less conflictual as possible. But there's a lot of information out there uh, that is misleading uh, around the vaccination on both sides. Um, people now have access to tools, internet to do search. And basically you can find arguments, pros and cons, the vaccination, and it goes into details and they all sound kind of credible information. Uh, what the employer was, public, public health authorities are putting out uh, is, is more information in one direction, uh, supporting the vaccination. Um, so it's, uh, it's for members who are concerned about a situation like the vaccination, it's easy to find information that uh, will align with where their mind is uh, being pro or against the vaccination. Basically, it leads down to what you want to believe in. Uh, the modern, modern society has decided to recognize the benefit of modern science. Science from the electricity to now down to the vaccination. Um, but if we look at the current state of vaccination, well, across the world, there have been 8.21 billion doses that have been administered, given worldwide. That 62 million doses in Canada, meaning that there's around 29 million Canadians fully vaccinated. So somehow the society, the world have recognized the benefit of the vaccination and are moving in that direction in supporting it. Um, Yes, there's always have been people that want to ask more questions. Uh, we, uh, we as a union and uh, the government as an employer have to make sure that the information is available for them to make their mind. But the current government have made the decision that the vaccination is a mandatory requirements to be able to provide services to Canadians. Uh, so that's the position that has been taken. Mm -hmm. 
Um, on the coercion side, uh, well, <laughs> my personal view on that would be that yes, big pharma are making big money behind that. Uh, they should find ways to make the vaccine more accessible to low-income countries, for example. Um, and if Canada would like to take a stand more in that, uh, maybe we could uh, make sure that the copyrights uh, on those vaccines get made public and then the cost would drop. Um, but uh, it's a decision that has not been taken, but is considered uh, in various countries to not recognize the copyrights of the vaccinations. Mm -hmm. I, I know there have been some proposals on that, and um, it may be a good topic for us to, to tackle, uh, tackle subsequently. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask your thoughts on how long this policy uh, for the public service is expected to be in place. Of course, uh, uh, of course, in the sh in the short term, if people are told uh, if you don't if you don't uh, if you don't follow through on on what's expected, then you're going to be placed on, placed on leave without pay. Um, I guess a lot of those those people are wondering, well, okay, are we talking about uh, are, are we talking about that going on for years, or is that or is that uh, more of just a short term thing until we get past whatever the the acute phase of the pandemic is? Yeah, well, sadly, I don't have a crystal ball on how long this pandemic will last. Um, the vaccination and the policy is a measure put in place in our battle against COVID. Uh, COVID worldwide is not slowing down. Uh, so this policy could stay on for a very long time. Uh, some have coined the term, we will have to live with it uh, as we do for the common flu. Um, we have to keep in mind that vaccination is not something new in Canada. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I was vaccinated against smallpox, chickenpox, and others, and it was a requirement to attend school. Uh, and at that time, I had a vaccination passport. So uh, currently in the collective agreement of our nurses and doctor, there is a requirement that they be properly vaccinated. Um, now that policy made the vaccination uh, condition of employment. Um, so basically it goes into the direction that if you want to work for the federal government, if you want to provide services to your fellow Canadians, well, you need to be vaccinated. That's the current direction. The policy is, is set to be reviewed every six months. Uh, but at the current rate of the new variant coming in, uh, I fear that it will take a long time before it's being reviewed and uh, removed. Um, it is sad for those that uh, work for the federal government who by choice don't want to be vaccinated and are put on leave without pay. Uh, that situation might last for a long while. Mm -hmm. So with it being reviewed every six months, you mentioned the new variant. I mean, bottom line, these folks will likely have to find another job pretty quickly unless they're, uh, you know, unless they they have, um, you know, some some other significant source of source of income, which which most people don't have. Yeah, the, currently they are put on administrative administrative leave leave without pay. Uh, so they are without salary, without access to the 
to the resources of the employer. They still have their uh, medical, dental insurance that is in place and their uh, pension is on hold unless they, they want to keep contributing to it. Um, but yeah, they are without an income until their status of vaccinations change or that the policy is being reviewed. Uh, and if they get one do dose of the vaccine, uh, they will, uh, everything will be reset as nothing did happen for now, uh, but they will have with tw uh, 10 weeks to uh, provide proof of their second vaccination uh, because the, the current policy state that you need to be fully vaccinated and according to Health Canada, fully vaccinated main two dose of vaccination. Uh -huh. yeah. um, we, we, we've, we've only got a few minutes left here, but I, I wanted oh. to get into the, um, the question of the election discourse and how that affected this, this conversation. Um, you know, I'd imagine a lot of these these conversations uh, about public service policies, they're not they're not always uh, matters of election or parliamentary debate. They're things that are worked out uh, directly between uh, between government and public service uh, unions. Um, but but this has become a sort of sharp matter of public conversation. Uh, how how does that how did that affect the circumstances of your members and um, and what? Um, what was your response to some of the conversations happening during the election? Well, I agree with you. The question of the mandatory vaccination ended up uh, being quite divisive for members within our ranks, as it is for Canadians. Uh, but they don't; they are not under a mandatory vaccination uh, currently. But for our union organization, uh, we have been asked by our members to represent them, uh, especially those that don't want to comply with the policy. But at the same time, on the other side, we're also being asked by our members to make sure that they are working in a condition that is safe for them. So it's kind of two, uh, two sides of the same coin in regard to the, the pandemic. Uh, we are obligated to represent all of them, uh, to represent their interests, but it's kind of divisive. Um, and I would say it's the same situation for any organization and government who are considering the conflicting option of uh, should we mandate vaccination or not? How would that impact the economy if we don't or will positively impact it if we do? Um, and so everybody is kind of looking for a third option, but there's no perfect situation in this. Um, or members do recognize that the, the vaccination is for the greater good, but at the same time, uh, we have members that don't want. Uh, the, the impact on the election, well, our, our members are kind of, um, well, we represent public servant, mainly public servant that work for the government, for the employer. And uh, because of that, connection, they, they feel to be in conflict of interest if they were to publicly speak against the direction of the government. Um, but uh, in the back, what we're hearing is that most of our members are in support of the vaccination of measures being taken to end that pandemic. Uh, and a limited numbers are have real concerns uh, 
being forced to be vaccinated. So it's divisive, but the numbers basically state that measures needed to be taken and the, the vaccination was one tool against that pandemic. Mm-hmm. So you're seeing a you know, majority support of the policies, but um, obviously a significant concern among those who uh, those who are, are affected. I, I mean, I, I, it, it just seems to me that, you know, if you've got people that are working from home that are prepared to test when they go into the office, you know, those, those seem like reasonable accommodations that can, that can achieve, essentially achieve the same objectives. Um, it could have been one way, but uh, the, the government in um, his leadership tried to uh, make this uh, show a good example of a strong decision in this battle against the, the COVID. Uh, so they took the decision that every public servant need to be vaccinated. Um, so yeah, it's a strong decision. Uh, hopefully one day we'll all be able to say that uh, the human race survived another outbreak like the plague or the, or the cholera, but uh, currently we're living through this pandemic uh, and measures need to be taken. Otherwise we end up with people that have long-term effect of the uh, the COVID if they get it or even some death. So uh, it's it's hard, it's, this, it's a strong decision that this policy implement, but it is we feel it is a required one uh, based on the situation. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining uh, my podcast and for sharing your, your perspective. It's, uh, it's good to connect and hear kind of how you're, you're navigating these issues. Uh, any, any final thoughts and words? And then, and then folks will, uh, will, will proceed to the second half. But uh, Mr. Obrey, any, any final words from you? Well, thank you, Garrett, for the opportunity to have this chat with you. Uh, for sure, I wish you and every uh, of your uh, listener uh, the best uh, to... as they are going through this pandemic. Uh, It is uh, a hard situation that we're living through, but the Canadian will survive this pandemic, hopefully. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Resuming debate. I'm here now with the irrepressible Nathaniel Erskine-Smith. Nate, congratulations on your re-election. Thanks for coming back. We were talking uh, before, uh, before we started here about the fact that you, uh, you just moved. So congratulations on, uh, uh, on, on moving. And uh, uh, how's the new place? How's, uh, how's life in Toronto? It's nice. I live among boxes, though. So two young kids and then boxes. So, you know, it's wild times. But it's, it's good. It's, it's nice to have more space for the kids. Yeah, um, I still live among boxes in my uh, parliamentary office in Ottawa because eh? without the the civilizing influence of uh, of my spouse, it just uh, just just never never seems like the right time to unpack at six years. So I guess I guess I'm ready when your uh, one of your liberal colleagues comes storming in and takes over Sherwood Park Fort Saskatchewan. So <laughs> yeah, what in a hundred years? <laughs> I. Uh, I'm sorry that we didn't have the opportunity to implement the conservative housing plan, which no doubt would have saved you a great deal of money on your uh, your home purchase. But uh, maybe we'll have the opportunity to do that soon. Yeah, I don't think any federal plan would have saved me any money, unfortunately. 
it's the the consequence of federal policies taking so long to take effect on supply and on the demand side we're so afraid you're afraid i'm afraid i mean we individually may not be afraid but our parties are afraid of talking about taxation and tamping down on demand but you know such is life well, I, uh, anyways, I would love to have that housing conversation with you, uh, and uh, maybe we'll have we'll have Pierre on to talk about how uh, you know supply chains and land, you know, aren't aren't a aren't Lumber a good price. excuse because oh, there's oh, lots wait. of lots of land. <laughs> um, but we're talking about uh, about vaccine uh, mandates, and thanks for coming on and talking about. It. I thought you were the right person to talk about it because uh, um, I know you as someone who is very concerned about um about civil liberties about individual choice and you know of course it goes without saying that um that the fact that you or i might not agree with someone's choice doesn't mean that they that they don't have the ability to make that choice especially when um when it involves their own their own bodies so um curious for your thoughts on the on the mandate um applied to public servants uh the fact that people don't have a testing alternative they can't opt to work from home even when that would be would be workable uh people in our public service now if they if they choose not to get vaccinated for whatever reason uh they're no longer um they're no longer able to work in the public service uh, is that consistent with your your vision of uh, freedom of body autonomy uh and, and what were, what's your response to that uh, that policy well one's individual rights don't exist in a vacuum, obviously. So one's individual rights obviously run up against the public health considerations of other people. And so I don't have an individual right to engage in smoking in public places everywhere where there are other people because that has knock-on consequences via secondhand smoke. And so when you look at the safety considerations for safe workplaces, it's important to note that vaccines are important to keep workplaces safe. And it's also important to note that as a matter of the collective public health and safety, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. And I think those who emphasize individual rights in as against vaccine mandates, I think miss the point on two fronts. One, what is the individual right that we are protecting here? There is, you know, this my body, my choice kind of language, which is reminiscent of you know, the uh, the reproductive rights sort of movement, I think is a, an unfortunate attempt at, at creating a parallel where, where a parallel truly doesn't exist given the minimal intrusion in relation to a vaccine when the science supports vaccination. And we have vaccine mandates in other, in other contexts. But the, the second side of it is just the, we are in the midst of a global pandemic and there are also collective concerns around public health and we should take those seriously. And, and I think it's an unfortunate understanding of individual rights that we, they don't run up against reasonable limits. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, there's a lot of a lot of things you said there that are, I think, important arguments. Let me maybe go through a few of them. So this is a question of safe, safe workplaces, right? Because there's, there's the question of uh, vaccine mandates as a tool for getting uh, getting vaccination rates up overall. And then there's the question of whether this is about the workplace itself. Now, it seems that if this is just about a question of safe workplaces, there are accommodations that could be offered, right? Uh, it, it seems legitimate for an employer to say, uh, if my employees are working in close quarters with each other, I want to make sure that people aren't bringing communicable diseases into the office. Uh, that can be done through 
vaccination, through testing, uh, or through um, or through work from home uh, options. So, um, you know, is it reasonable for the government to allow people who can work from home, who for whatever reason uh, choose not to be vaccinated? Uh, to continue to be in the public service and, and working from home, given that that satisfies the, the requirement to have a safe workplace? So I don't think it's just about safe workplaces, which I think is the important point to note. But if we are to squarely focus on safe workplaces, then is it reasonable for the employer to accommodate individuals to who for whatever reason are refusing vaccination and choosing not to be vaccinated to work from home? It may be reasonable in certain contexts for, for an employer to provide that accommodation. It, I think it's a required accommodation where someone can't be vaccinated for legitimate medical reasons, um, but where it is based on a misunderstanding of the science and a, a misplaced fear, then I would say it's reasonable for the employer who wishes to make that accommodation to make that accommodation, but it's, it's, it's equally reasonable for the employer to say, we can't make this accommodation for everyone. We can't make this accommodation when the request itself is not a reasonable request. And so we aren't going to accommodate and we're going to require that every individual in our employ is vaccinated unless, unless there's a legitimate medical exemption. And I think it's really important to emphasize sort of the grounds upon which one could potentially be discriminated against. And, you know, one's health certainly is a ground. So if someone were fired because they were unvaccinated out of a legitimate medical reason, then that's obviously unreasonable and unacceptable. But on the flip side, what is this, you know, we can't, I don't think we should wave our hands and say, well, if they choose to be vaccinated for whatever reason, I don't, I don't think that's a good waving away of, of the fundamental issue here. It's really important for people to be vaccinated, both as a matter of safety of the workplace. And by the way, vaccines and rapid tests and working from home are, are not entirely interchangeable. Someone might be able to work from home, but then circumstances may change for that employer and they may need to have them in the office at, cer at certain points. I certainly, you know, we have a, you guys very much push back on us when we were talking about a hybrid parliament for the reason that working in person is important. I, I think it is important to work in person at times. And so I, I think that's a challenge at, for, for, some, for some context of employment, but rapid tests and vaccines provide different layers of protection at the same time, right? So I don't think they're entirely interchangeable there. And we can just sort of say, well, you don't, no one has to be vaccinated, your personal choice, we're just gonna provide rapid tests instead. I, I don't think that's an ideal solution. And I think it's eminently reasonable for the employer to say, we're in the middle of a global pandemic and we're going to mandate vaccinations and from the government's perspective especially to say we're going to mandate vaccinations not only for the safety of the workplace which is a, a consideration but also and and I, I would say even more importantly in some ways to ensure that we are setting a marker to say this is a really important message to be sending to the public that vaccinations are safe that vaccinations are important and everyone needs to be vaccinated as a matter of collective goodwill and and public health and and i, and I think it's a really unfortunate message to instead sort of say you can be unvaccinated for any reason you like and personal freedom and personal choice and and we completely miss the point of that we're part of a community and part of a society and we need to do our part yeah, uh, I mean, I I think the the argument of of uh, res the responsibility we all have to to the collective common good is um, it's a it's a sort of persuasive argument at the individual level, um, but I I, I want to sort of at the same time pull out some of these pieces because 
like the, the question of individual responsible behavior is different from the question of um, of bodily autonomy, right? And I to totally agree that um, the actions, choices individuals make have effects on others. Um, but if you're talking to an individual, um, an individual public servant, and let's use a hypothetical of someone who has had some negative experience with the medical system in the past, right? So, um, so they're they're um, they're they're um, they're coming to conclusions that uh, that you and I would disagree with, but they're sort of broadly speaking a sympathetic case of an individual who who like has had something bad happen to them in the context of of, of an interaction with the medical system. Um, that individual is, is uncomfortable. Uh, that individual's uh, might be persuadable, but is not going to be persuaded by a by a mandate, right? Um, and that person says, "Look, um, I'm prepared to pay for uh, tests myself, um, work from home when I can." Um, and, and and this is what we've seen in in some places where, in the case where a person can't work from home, if they if they need to go into the office periodically, then they and then they get a rapid test. So, so different. Some of these different different policies are are tried in different places. Like it seems to me that 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 it would be very possible to keep the workplace safe, um, especially since since we're we're generally not requiring rapid tests uh, now in general. It's it's sort of vaccination or or uh, or or don't come in. But there's no vaccination and and rapid test. Um, are, are you are like are, are you like it, it seems to me that this is this is not so much about the safe workplace places places piece it's about it's about the other piece and, and let's talk about that in a minute but um it can be about both though yeah, yeah. i mean, I, mean I, I don't see why it can't be about both it is about both when i when i think of it um but but look i'm, I'm sympathetic I, I spoke you know in this election just as i'm sure you did to any number of people who had questions had concerns and they weren't strident maxine bernier anti-vaxxers and and grifters of sorts and or or have been grifted i mean th they were people who legitimately had questions and concerns and so i think you answer those concerns as best you can with education i think you answer those concerns as best you can with uh with medical professionals and, and getting them the advice that they need but it really does come down to and, and i think you reference this idea that well and a mandate isn't going to get them vaccinated it it, it does though on the evidence of this right so any number of people who initially were had questions and, and maybe were more skeptical and reticent to be vaccinated the mandates have proven that it really does make sure that people get vaccinated and you can say well you know they shouldn't be forced to do so and and that that seems unfair and that seems too too harsh and and too much of a burden to place on them and too heavy-handed, and certainly I heard that from from folks in the election to some extent, a small minority of people, I should say. But I, I did hear from that some from some people. But my experience when I explained that, well, we already have vaccine mandates in Ontario for schools, and the, you know, it, the sky hasn't fallen, and people go get their kids vaccinated, and we listen to health professionals, and we make you know, Health Canada has done their due diligence, and and other regulators around the world have done their due diligence, and these are as safe as anything in comparison to those. And this is an idea that already exists within our within our school system. Why should this be so different? And, and I'll tell you, not everyone, but a number of people said, oh, I didn't know that this kind of mandate already exists. I, I didn't know, but now that I know, yeah, okay, I can see how it's comparable. And and when we see the, the sheer numbers of people who raise concerns as employees, and then when the mandate came to fruition, overwhelmingly people got vaccinated. And a very, very, very small minority of people 
really fought it and and in some cases lost their jobs and and not just in the public sector but in the private sector too and so when you look at the efficacy of mandates i think the efficacy has been quite high in terms of ensuring that employees have been vaccinated who otherwise would not have been vaccinated regardless of education regardless of medical advice yeah so i, I want to be, be clear that my, my point wasn't that uh I, I don't think vaccine mandates may lead to higher vaccination rates. I mean, I think when you when you put in place coercive policies to tell people you're going to lose your job if you don't do X, then there's some margin of people, depending on what X is, who are going to say, too bad, I'm leaving. And there's some margin of people that are going to say, on balance, my job is more important. Um, I guess my point was just that that, that mandates aren't a, aren't a uh, persuasive tool in that they don't make people um, they don't impact people's feeling of comfort with it one way or the other. They just lead people um, feeling like they have to do it. And uh, sure. although, although at the same time, you know, psychology is a, a, a complex thing. And so I've also read, I've also read opinions to say that people who oppose the vaccine being vaccinated themselves and, and, you know, people are reticent to change their minds or being perceived to have been wrong about something and they, they dig their heels in and the mandates gave them an out in some cases. So some people might, might've felt incredibly uncomfortable, but other people might've said there, there was some relief there to say, okay, I'm not fighting anymore. I, I can just say I, I had to do it. Um, and, and so there, you know, psychology is a com complex thing people, you know, the mandates meant different things to different people, but I, I do take the point And I took the point from any number of people in the election uh, you know, I would say there were folks who I was never going to get to who were describing this as sort of medical apartheid. And, you know, you say thanks for the chat and you walk away. Uh, and, and But other folks express real concern and you engage them. And it's not perfect, but I would say, you know, overall, on balance, I, I think the mandates are a reasonable option. You may find that there are reasonable accommodations. You may say, well, it might be reasonable for an employer to provide this accommodation instead and that accommodation instead. But I think as in many cases, there are ranges of reasonable options. And I do think it's incredibly reasonable in the middle of a global pandemic for an employer, especially a public employer, especially the federal government that is emphasizing the importance of vaccinations for the for the population to lead by example and to say we're all going to be vaccinated. Yeah, so um, let, let's talk about this, this question of um, leading by example, because I, I mean, I, I think um, I would say accommodations are possible, but if the goal is to send a message to say, you know, we, we want to send a message about vaccination. Um, I, I am though confused by how mandating vaccination is used as a basis, is advanced on the basis of the importance of leading by example. I mean, pre presumably um, when people are, <laughs> are not make, are doing something entirely voluntarily, it's, they're not setting an example, right? Like, no, what, I mean, what kind as, of employer, as an employer, there, there are many different employers across this country. And when you have the federal government in particular that is emphasizing the united message, and, and frankly, I think we're lucky. I, you know, I, I think the Conservative Party of Canada has had its challenges when it comes to vaccination policy. I joked with Aaron O'Toole that I was going to join the Civil Liberties Caucus and Marilyn Glidhu was causing him great headaches. But, you know, uh, at least in this country, and I think we, we should be thankful for the conservatism in this country in the course of this pandemic, in, in contrast to the United States, where we have had Jason Kenney, Aaron O'Toole, we, Doug Ford, there, there has been unison among conservative leaders to say, go get vaccinated. And so I, I do think it is, from a leadership position, when we're saying go get vaccinated, it is so important to get vaccinated. We are mandating vaccines for the House of Commons, we're mandating vaccines in the federal civil service, we're mandating vaccines 
in relation to transportation and within federal jurisdiction, it is incredibly important that we emphasize the critical importance of this, the best layer of protection that we have, not only that it has an impact on transmissibility, although Omicron is presenting a challenge there, but especially as it relates to the fundamental core concern, which is hospitalization, death, and the overwhelming of our hospital systems and, and our healthcare capacity. And from that perspective, I think it is incredibly important to say this matters so much that we're making sure that it's mandated and we're getting that vaccination, those vaccination rates up as high as possible. And I think it's a signal to other employers and it's a signal to Canadians. So I, I do think, I take the point that, you know, is it leadership if you're forcing people to do it? But I think there are other ways to think about that kind of leadership. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and look, I mean, I think you're being um, open about the fact that, and, and this is something people on the other side have said as well as a complaint that, that this is about, um, that this policy in the federal public service um, is is less about safe workplaces and it's more about trying to push the message that um, uh, that that employers in the private sector outside of federal public service should do this or consider this doing this as well. Um, uh, you, you mentioned our party. I just you know to, to emphasize right, our our party is is um, is pro vaccination uh, and we're also opposed to this policy with respect to the, to the federal public service. We think, um, we think reasonable accommodations are, are, um, are reasonable. Uh, you, you made a comment about the civil liberties caucus and um, I, it is interesting to me how, um, like, like you're someone that, that has talked a lot about civil liberties, right? And I, I suppose that's where the, where the joke comes from. And I, I, I'm just curious, like, do you think there's a, there's a point to be made that maybe the position you're taking in this conversation is a little bit inconsistent with positions you've taken on other issues. Like the, the, the science on, on drug use is pretty clear, right? That, that, um, that using, uh, using hard drugs is, is, uh, not good for you. Right. Um, the science on, um, on, on, on various things that, that people might do that, that cause them physical harm. Um, and, do you, you seem to see the choice to not get vaccinated as different from like other kinds of choices yeah, that well, are fundamentally, also it's fundamentally yeah. different. Yeah. And I think okay. it's different in a number of important ways. Right. So there is no responsible let's, let's bracket out medical exemptions. Okay. So now we're saying we're waving our hands and saying for any reason whatsoever, but let's, let's say for medical exemptions, this does not apply because obviously anyone who has a medical exemption and a legitimate medical reason, then of course, you know, they're, they're not going to be vaccinated and reasonable accommodation is required. But apart from that, there's no responsibly unvaccinated person, right? So whereas there is a majority of people who use drugs, use drugs responsibly and don't have addiction issues and, and don't have challenges that are for that are public facing or, or that have an impact upon other people. So the best evidence that we have most recently, if you look at Global Commission uh, uh, Drug Policy, you're looking at the of worldwide use, you're looking at 10 to 15% of use is problematic use. Okay. So, and that is including so-called hard drugs and, and, you know, obviously coca leaf is different than, you know, um, crack cocaine. And so, you know, different substances can be processed differently. But when you look at drug use in total, uh, illicit drug use in total, I should say, you are looking at problematic substance use being a very a small minority actually of, of overall substance use and so the idea that you would throw people in jail 
and you would or otherwise curtail their rights on the basis that you, Garnett, can use it responsibly, but we're going to throw you in jail on the basis that me, Nathaniel, I, I'm unable to use the substance responsibly. That makes no sense at all. And unless the goal is to say some deter deterrence value. And then, and then we get to the effectiveness of it, right? So mandates are effective at increasing use. Deterrence is not effective at reducing use of, of, of substance use, unfortunately. So despite all the money we've thrown at it, it has failed. And in, in, in fact, it has had like knock on negative consequences to destabilize regimes, to prop up organized crime, to kill people through the poison toxic drug supply that we currently have, where we're seeing a 9-11 every three months. So all of that's to say that they're demonstrably different conversations. And and I would add that if you want to actually tackle the, I, I and I will say, you know, this is where I would be maybe more interventionist than other folks in, in the in the drug policy space. I would say if there was good evidence that some coercion would work in reducing consumption to say, Garnett, you've got a problem and you are addicted to heroin and you, in some cases, that's translating into petty theft, in some cases, to feed your addiction, in other cases, that might be translating into public intoxication and, and problems there. You, you are, on the one hand, having an impact on the public space, so then we as a public have an interest in that. But even apart from that, you are, you are obviously no longer able to exercise uh, your own independent decisions in quite the same way because of the impact that the, the substance is having on you because you are addicted. And there, in, for, your, for your own interest, I think the public also, um, there, there is a rationale there for the public to, uh, to intervene. Now, is the intervention going to be successful? And I think the evidence overwhelmingly is, certainly prohibition is an unsuccessful intervention and criminalization is an unsuccessful problematic intervention, but even mandated treatment, because this isn't get your vaccination one shot, two shots, three shots, you're done. This isn't this isn't a very simple thing. This is continued treatment that requires you as an individual to be dedicated to it for it to work. And so the evidence overwhelmingly is that it, there's a voluntariness that has to be there for it to work. So I think it's twofold. One is these are demonstrably different conversations in many respects, but two, so much depends upon efficacy. Whereas we know mandates work, we know vaccines work, and the drug policy interventions we've seen to date even where there is the public interest that, that might justify an intervention, the interventions we've seen are unjustified because they don't work. And, and if they don't work, then the, the interference in one's civil liberties is unjustified. Okay, yeah, I mean, um, that's, that's, those are really interesting uh, reflections. Um, I don't agree with them on, on, on a few counts, but I, I wanna maybe just try to distill like what your philosophy is though, coming out of that around choice and coercion, right? Like, it sounds like you're saying that coercing people who make irresponsible choices is legitimate if that coercion is effective. And your, your objection no, to no, coercion- No, no, okay. no, not, no, not irresponsible choices, no. So if you because, want because to you, go- you, 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 you said on, on the, the differences- Oh, where saying, someone is addicted, that's, that's different though, because, because then I think it, there is a consideration if someone is in a mental health crisis, uh, is, is there a public interest in intervening and helping that person in their own interests? Um, and I think yes is the answer, right? So if someone is suffering from an addiction issue that they cannot help themselves and it's demonstrably hurting themselves, even though it's not hurting anyone else. And this is where I would depart, I think, 
probably from from some others but i would say yeah there is a public interest in helping that person if we're if we can if we can help them and and there an intervention and some coercion may well be required and and, and justified uh, if if it works uh, but that's a very high bar to say that the individual is suffering from a mental health issue at at such a level that is impacting their their own ability to make to freely consent and, and to make autonomous yeah. choices that's so, a very very high bar so let's but let's let's play a bit with the distinction you the twofold distinction you described between um the, you know uh the the choice of using drugs and the and the choice of not getting getting uh, uh vaccinated um in in your view and and i you know it depends on what you mean by responsible use but i i don't I mean, uh, well, you didn't think there was responsible cannabis use before we legalized cannabis, but like I can tell you, I responsibly use cannabis before legalization. I continue to responsibly use cannabis, uh, just as I'm sure you responsibly consume alcohol. And the thing is, there is no universe in which being unvaccinated, apart from medical exemption, is responsible. And so, 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 but let's, and and there's clear differences, by the way. uh, And then, uh, but if I consume cannabis, uh, you know, the other night I had a cannabis beverage. Last night I had a rye. I mean, like neither of those choices impacted your your life. Whereas if I showed up in the House of Commons unvaccinated, and I I have the I potentially would impact your life. You know what I mean? So I like the the impact upon others is real for the unvaccinated person. And even if I didn't impact your life in the House of Commons, it has a collective impact on all of us when it puts the hospital you know the hospital capacity and healthcare capacity at risk. So uh, very different. Yeah conversations i think as it relates to versus responsible drug use and and there is yeah. responsible drug use i mean i think it's yeah. self-evident that there is you are you you are like um shifting a bit on the comparison here right in that like um you're you're, you're saying like um you having a particular beverage at home versus going to a public place presuming that you also haven't been tested and haven't taken other kinds of okay kinds oh, of that's measures. a great example a great great example because when i go to a public place if i was to consume uh over consume a substance so i use it irresponsibly now if i do that in a public place i could i could irresponsibly consume in the comfort of my own home and maybe you say well that's an unfair comparison because you know the unvaccinated person could be at home and they're not putting anyone at risk but if i go out in public and i irresponsibly consume a, a legal substance or an illegal substance and then i'm intoxicated public intoxication is a crime and and uh, it's, it's there's a nuisance there. And uh, obviously, if I drive and I'm putting others at risk, then then that's a crime too. And, and, so and we, use, we, use, use of hard drugs also impacts healthcare capacity, right? Like I mean, uh, potentially, if, 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 yeah. it's, if, it, if it's irresponsible use, I would say though, you know why it really impacts hospital capacity? Because of prohibition, because we're poisoning people. Well, so that's, <laughs> I mean, if we had a safe supply, you wouldn't know. Okay. That, but, you know. So, 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 look, we could, we could, we could go deep on the drug policy. <laughs> no, we're gonna do, we're gonna do that. We're gonna do. We're gonna, that. We're, we're, we're gonna do that. I don't wanna, yeah. I don't wanna. I've got a date. I, we're, we're, we're gonna have a date. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but let's let's go to the general principle here because you made a distinction um, when you said, okay, the difference in your view between uh, someone who's using hard drugs and someone who's choosing not to get vaccinated is number one, a question of whether that choice can be made responsibly and right. number two the effectiveness of the of the coercive policy yes. so it's it it sounds like you're saying to me it sounds like you're saying that that in the case where coercive policy is effective and where people are making choices that are uh in your judgment in the judgment of, of the state uh, irresponsible then it is legitimate to implement coercive policies at a general level, is that is that a fair summation of your your view of 
you know, well, coercion wouldn't, wouldn't, that they wouldn't both... drunk driving be an example of that? Well, I mean, dr- drunk driving is is, I think, based on a, a very clear a very to, clear to interpretation of the harm principle. Yeah. So, but the the, the criteria you 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 established for making the distinction wasn't about impact on other people. You said you said the difference because drug use can impact other people in in various ways, obviously as as, as well. Um, in, in the same way that that a lot of health choices can impact other people. You know, if you're, if you're doing it privately and away from others and you're not interacting with others, there's less of an impact. And if you're interacting with other people, there's more of an impact, but, um, but, but do you like, this sounds like a significant departure from what I, what I thought you thought about individual freedom, which was that like, even if I'm making an irresponsible choice, um, I still have some margin of control over my own body because, because I get to be irresponsible in a free society. And that's just, you part do. of freedom of course okay of course you, you do, do you do believe that but, but you don't but, believe but, it about but, vaccination well okay but let's because these are very different things right so on the one hand though i did but i did qualify to say on drugs in particular where one is addicted such that it's impinging upon their ability to consent in, in a as one would understand you know free will and autonomy then yeah I, I think there is then a rationale for an intervention so but it's a a very high bar now as it relates to vaccination though what's the are we talking about so someone could responsibly be unvaccinated and stay in their home all the time? I mean, like, what are we talking about here? Because we know, and Omicron only makes this more evident, I think, but unvaccinated people are putting the healthcare system at greater risk. Unvaccinated people are putting themselves at risk, certainly. Um, and what's the what's the core interest that we're that we're protecting here, right? So, like. On the one hand, I'm saying, let's not throw people in jail for consuming drugs. And you're saying, let's not do anything to encourage or not to encourage. Let's not do anything to force people in the public service to be vaccinated. I, I, I don't I mean, I don't see so many comparisons there when the person who is working in the public service, we can't make unlimited accommodations for people to work from home. I, I think there are going to be many circumstances where people do have to be in person. And so that being the case, we just are like in your perfect world, it looks like what that we are going to say no strong public health message. And we're going to have what rapid tests on a daily basis. Is, is that the perfect answer here? Well, I mean, I, I think the accommodation you're, you're right to say that the accommodations would bear, vary from individual to individual and situation to situation. Right. And um, I think part of that accommodation in, in many uh, workplaces has involved people being responsible for the cost of that testing. And I mean, we have lots of reasons to want the cost of testing to go down because it's there are many situations where it's worthwhile for vaccinated people to be testing as well. Um, because but, think, about, think uh, about the accommodation on, on drugs, right? So I, I, I had a human rights, uh, I had a client, a restaurant that faced this uh, before, before my involvement in politics, uh, where the individual was claiming, you know, I have a right to get high on the job as a matter of my uh, my human rights and, and patient considerations. And, you know, there these are competing considerations here, right? Where the, yes, sure, the, the, the individual might want to access uh, cannabis in order to alleviate pain for uh, for their condition, but that runs up against the employer's concern, which is, I can't have you intoxicated on the job, and and I the the, the employer has an interest, and and reasonable everything depends upon reasonableness. So is it reasonable to expect the employer to allow someone to 
consume cannabis on premise and, and be high at work. And I would say in that, that pretty clearly impacts their ability to do the job, right? Sure. But, but my point is like, it's very possible for someone to go home, consume cannabis in the comfort of their own home and come to work the next day completely unaffected. But it is not possible for an unvaccinated person who is always unvaccinated, unlike the person who is intoxicated at particular periods of time. So the unvaccinated person is just living one's life in the world is posing a greater risk to themselves and a greater risk to, to others and, and a greater risk to, to our healthcare capacity. And I don't know why, I guess, um, and you in particular, given your conservatism, as I understand it, which I, I always understood to be less about this emphasis on individual rights and more this emphasis on sort of public good, I guess I, I have a hard time grappling with how this is such a problem when we're saying to people, everyone, as a matter of collectivism, as a matter of we're in, you know, we, we've had to shut our economy down at various points. We've seen great impact upon our healthcare system and frontline workers, great impact upon businesses, great impact upon employment, great impact upon loss of lives. I mean, I, I, I guess I, I've great impact upon the bottom line of governments around the world that we can't do other things functionally probably going forward that you and I would like to see governments do. I, I guess I struggle to see how balanced against all of that, we say, you know, we wave our hands and say, oh, but people can watch a YouTube video and and be convinced that they don't want to be vaccinated. Um, and that's that's an okay counterbalance. It just, it just isn't. Yeah, so I mean, I think part of what makes this an interesting conversation is that there are there are some ways in which it feels like we're we're um, taking different sides than we have on other debates. Which is probably why, yeah, I think it's interesting. Like I, um, I, um, I guess my my conservatism includes a strong belief in the importance of communitarianism and personal responsibility and and. Um, um, but I, I think like that, that vision of sort of voluntary communitarianism is, is different from a belief in, in, uh, um, in, in, in big coercive state power. I mean, I, um, I mean, it's, it's sort of a, a not a, sort of a variation of, of, of third way distributism as opposed to, as opposed to saying, well, the, the government can, uh, can take advanced coercive policies and and i think of you as as the sort of so, so i just just say like i mean my my conservatism includes sort of a, a mix of that communitarian impulse and also a, a belief in the importance of individual liberty and uh i think my impression of of your philosophy has been someone who who really takes that individual liberty piece and runs with it it just seems in this case that um but runs up but it does run up against it and i mentioned at the outset yeah. right so individual rights are subject to reasonable limits of course yeah. and those and so everything depends upon reasonableness and the impact upon and I, I the harm principle i think does go a long way as far as it goes and, and in this case and and drug use is an example assisted dying is an example prostitution these are all examples where the impact upon society writ large if we responsibly find a way to strictly regulate we are going to solve the problems of prohibition we are going to respect individual liberties and we're going to address so many of the problems that we are actually say we are concerned about by trying to impose blanket prohibitions, but also respect individual liberties at the same time. And in this context, the individual liberty interest at play is a very modest one. And I'm describing that in 
I, I would say, very generous terms. And the impact upon society writ large is so significant when we, if we, if, you know, and, and we're lucky in Canada not to have a high unvaccinated population, but it's still going to be a challenge as Omicron whip through, whips through the population. There's still a risk there, at least. And we hope that it's milder and we hope that hospitalization rates don't you know, become divorced and, and, and are divorced from, from case counts. But, uh, you know, the, when I look at on balance, the, the competing interests here, the, the individual liberty interest is a very small one in comparison to the societal interest that, that matters a great deal. And so I'm not sure what we're, what we're going to bat for. Whereas when we talk about the other areas of interest around uh, whether it's drug use and counter decriminalization or whether we talk about assisted dying and the fundamental interest in such a you know that such a fundamental life decision when you, when we talk about you know the the harmful effects of our prostitution laws i mean there are any number of cases where you know there's you know consensual crime is 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 what we would describe it as when as long as we've got a blanket prohibition but in this case uh, a mandatory vaccination policy in a federal workplace people should go get vaccinated well, I, I think in the middle uh, of a global pandemic, Garnett. Yeah, this I look this 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 is a this is a great discussion, and you know you keep you keep introducing other policy areas that I'm just uh, tempted <laughs> to, tempted to chase here, but we will. Um, are we gonna uh, Are you gonna help me decriminalize we'll sex work? To, we'll have to have you back. You know, I, I was I was in I was recently in Amsterdam, uh, and I met with a couple of organizations working in uh, human trafficking, and uh, I had some had some very uh, very interesting conversations. Just a spoiler alert: No, I'm I'm not going to help you work on. But there, but it's interesting because but, uh, uh, we don't have to go down the road too uh, far. But there's a really good example where you would look at the evidence and you go, human trafficking is a is obviously a concern that we need to address and and should be a priority. And is there a way to address that at the same time as we manage a blanket prohibition? Blanket prohibition being a completely unregulated space that I would say has allowed human trafficking yeah. to continue while also putting sex workers at risk. And so are, and, and look, maybe you and you land at a space where it's impossible to protect sex workers and also address human trafficking. Um, but, uh, but I would say probably is possible unless figure out the, the right regulatory pathway because different regulatory pathways uh, ought to exist and, and do exist. Anyway, that's all to say on the federal workplaces. Um, yeah, I'm glad, look, we, we live in a, we're lucky to live in Canada where you and I will agree everyone should go get vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we've got uh, Nader Smith, uh, <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll, as long as you're vaccinated. I would right? say sex, drugs, and vaccination, but yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> um, spoke, spokesman for sex, drugs, and vaccination. Uh, thanks so much for coming. I did want to ask you one other question just about the policy itself. That is, yeah. um, how, how long do you think it's going to persist? I mean, uh, the, the fiscal update uh, mentioned uh funding for three years for the for the uh, enforcement of the travel uh, mandates. Um, obviously, a lot of folks are hoping this is going to be <laughs> behind us three years from now. Um, but uh, um, I think it would be a fool's errand to try to set an end date other than to say, yes, there should be an end date, right? Like, so if this is if this becomes endemic and we have a much milder strain such that it at some point is much more akin to the flu and it is then really important for people to go get vaccinated still but it isn't a risk to society in the same way uh, it might become a place where we still have a mandatory policy in schools in the same way we do for for many other vaccinations but we don't in other 
in federal workplaces have the same rules for others. And so if it, if it translates into something quite similar at some point, um, then there should be an end date to it, right? So uh, when is that end date? I think we follow the science as, as far as it goes, but uh, we, I think it's, it was foolhardy for the provincial government in Ontario, at least, to say we're going to end vaccine passports, vaccine certificates by January when that, you know, obviously they've had to reverse course on that. So I think it's it's foolish to set timelines that inevitably will change. Um, and But we should be focused on saying, you know, we're going to follow the science and this isn't f forever. And it's because we're in the middle of a global pandemic, a pandemic that we know will end. I hope so. <laughs> we all hope so. <laughs> uh, Nate, great, great to see you again. Great to get caught up. Uh, congratulations on the new house and uh, good luck with uh, with all your unpacking. And yeah, uh, uh, I look forward I know, to our date. We're gonna yeah. go talk to cops. I, I can't wait. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that'll. Anyways, I uh, got got lots of jokes to make on that, but. Uh, <laughs> uh, It'll, uh... I've never been so excited to speak to police officers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a few. Anyways, um, it's um, it, it's it's always great to chat about these important issues uh, facing our country. And I know you you and I are kind of in the same boat in terms of uh, having young families and uh, uh, that sacrifice involved, especially when you've got kids and you're working to kind of explain to them um, why you do what you do. So. Um, so you know, until a conservative defeats you in Beaches East York, uh, wish you wish you well uh, with your continuing work, and uh, look forward to uh, to continuing these conversations. Those th those those who are listening, uh, go leave a review on the internet somewhere, and uh, hope you hope you continue to enjoy these episodes, and uh, we'll we'll keep bringing you great conversations on uh, topical issues facing uh, facing Canada. <laughs> Thank you.